Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Right to Die and Physician-Assisted Death present complex and sensitive issues. These issues are grappled with by not only patients, but physicians, legislators, and voters. On this episode of Sound Practice, we will look at the laws impacting physician-assisted death. We will examine the topic from both the terminally ill patient's perspective as well as the physician's point of view. This is not an easy topic, but it is certainly one of tremendous importance. There is much to discuss, so let's begin. My guest today on Sound Practice is Katie Englehart. Katie is a journalist and documentary film producer. She is a national fellow at New America. She's worked as a correspondent for Vice News, worked with NBC News. Her writing has appeared far and wide. Her new book is The Inevitable. Katie, thank you for being on Sound Practice. Thank you so much for having me. It is absolutely our pleasure. So, as you know, our our audience today are physicians and practice administrators. And it seems to me that a question occurs about natural uh, death. Mm. When people are on so much medication, devices, uh, dialysis, all of this, what is a natural death now? Well, I think that's, uh, a really good question. I mean, and I think that um, a lot of Americans would be surprised by what normal death sort of looks like now. Um, you know, often they take place in medical settings, they involve some kind of drug with some sort of sedative effect. Um, you know, I find that a lot of families who see relatives die, what, what we would probably call good deaths, normal deaths, typical deaths, um, are, are, are still sort of surprised by the course of events um, and, and just how um, yeah, medicalized they are, how many interventions actually occur in those final days. But I think this is really relevant to our discussion about physician-assisted death. You know, I think there's this tendency, um, and I think it really exists in the medical field, to to describe physician-assisted death as this thing that's completely separate from everything else that exists in end-of-life medicine. You know, we have normal end-of-life medicine, and then we have this, this aberration that some a particular sort of person chooses. I think it's much more accurate to see physician-assisted death as part of this continuum that we have, you know, um, looking at palliative care and, and different kind of end-of-life medicine, and then physician-assisted death is sort of being a few little steps further um, rather than something entirely separate. Physician-assisted death is not legal in most states, yet the United States certainly boasts of all types of, of freedom, freedom of religion, freedom of speech. Uh, you, you can go through the, uh, the Bill of Rights uh, with me on, on these, these freedoms, but there is no autonomy for an adult in good mental health to choose to end their, end their life. Why, why do you think that that is? Well, I think, you know, 
the United States is actually sort of a country of extremes here, as, as I guess is typical. I mean, in a state like Oregon, you know, Oregon was the first place in the world to have legal physician-assisted death. It's been legal in the state for 25 years. But of course, I think, you know, we also see some of the firmest opposition to this. I mean, you're right. I think a lot of people are, you know, people who aren't particularly well-versed in, well-versed in, um, you know, medical law will be very surprised to learn that they actually can't just control their final days and weeks in the ways that they're used to controlling their health care. Um, and I find a lot of people are angry and indignant when they realize this, often quite quite late in the game. Um, you know, there are a lot of lobby groups and, and interest groups in the United States who have opposed this kind of legislation, which is why it only exists in 11 jurisdictions. Uh, and actually, you know, medicine's one of those groups. I think particularly in the 90s and early 2000s, we saw a lot of palliative care physicians actively oppose uh, medical aid in dying laws. And that was for a number of reasons. I mean, for some of them, they thought the laws were contrary to their, their do no harm pledge. Others thought the laws were just unnecessary. You know, doctors said that they were getting better at better better and better at pain management and end-of-life health care, and, and their patients just wouldn't need these kinds of laws because um, the medicine they would have access to would be so good. Other palliative care physicians told me they they had this sense, they, they'd had the sense through their work and through their professional development that, you know, the end of the, there, there's something special and necessary about the end-of-life process, people dying over time, you know, having a chance perhaps to to look for closure, talk to family, tie up loose ends, and they hated the idea of speeding up that process. So actually, in some ways, some of the doctors closest to this issue were some of the firmest opponents to these laws. And then, of course, we can add in, you know, organized religion. Uh, the Catholic healthcare system in particular is relevant here. Understood. So you mentioned 11 jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. In which this is which, in which physician-assisted uh, death is uh, is legal. What type of regulations do we see in those jurisdictions? How's the process governed? Mm -hmm. It's very very regulated. I mean, uh, your listeners will know that uh, when they are, you know, say say we have an oncologist who is engaging with a patient, and the patient has gone through a round of chemotherapy and is deciding not to continue with a second round, you know, your listeners know that that's a conversation that happens between doctor and patient and maybe family members. That patient chooses to stop treatment, as is her right, and that will have an effect. You know, maybe the, maybe a chemotherapy would have worked. Maybe it would have extended her life and she's choosing to end it, but that's a conversation that happens in a doctor's office. That's not the case with uh, medical aid and dying. So most laws look like Oregon's death with dignity law, which is the oldest. Um, that law requires, you know, it has very strict criteria. So first of all, a patient has to be terminally ill. And two physicians have to agree that the patient is within six months of what we can call a natural death. Uh, the doctors also have to agree that the patient has the mental capacity to be making this decision. If that's in doubt, patient will usually be referred to a psychiatrist or, or maybe a psychologist for psychiatric assessments. 
And then there's a lot of paperwork. So the doctor, the attending physician is expected to fill out forms kind of beginning during after the process is completed. Uh, the patient has to sign written forms in the presence of a witness. And there's a waiting period. So in some states, we're looking at a, a kind of a 10-day waiting period where a patient has to think about it and be sure that that's what he wants. That's quite a controversial part of the the legislation. You know, we could sit, we, we can we can understand why it's there. We could, you know, this is a really serious and irreversible decision. It maybe it makes sense to have patients uh, reflect on it. On the other hand, we don't require patients to wait and think about it when they make decisions about anything else in, in end-of-life health care. They, again, go back, going back to that hypothetical cancer patient, she can decide to withdraw treatment. Her doctor doesn't say, I'll agree to that, you know, but in, in two weeks, if you're still sure. Um, so, but, so there is that, that waiting period. And then afterwards, the doctor will, um, you know, fill out some paperwork talking about time of death and, and, and that sort of thing, but also will answer a kind of questionnaire that gets at why the patient chose physician-assisted death. And that's left us with some interesting data um, over the long term, looking at, you know, things like demographics, but also the more philosophical reasons why people choose this. In all jurisdictions, are there a, a mandatory psychological evaluation process? Well, the patient has to have capacity. I mean, as they do for, I guess, any other decision, sure. right? And doctors are usually measuring that on the fly. There's not a more formal psychiatric assessment that's required. Um, so it's just kind of the same capacity assessment that doctors are used to um, doing in the course of providing care. Typically, how long does the process take from when a patient raises the issue of being interested in mm. physician-assisted death and until the process is completed? Yeah, I think that's really variable. So what I found is that even in states where physician-assisted death is legal, uh, it's not always accessible, which can slow down the process. So first of all, there's this issue of like, do the patients even know about it? Do they know that it's an option? Um, it's not often something that doctors, even in states where it's legal, bring up actively this is a big point of debate in medicine. You know, I, I spoke to a lot of palliative care physicians in California who are really debating this question of, is it the responsibility to tell patients this is legal in the state, this is an option, or would bringing it up kind of pressure their patients in some way? A lot of doctors worried about that too. So some patients, it, it takes them a while to learn about their option. Um, for some, it takes them a while to find a doctor who's willing to do it. So in some cases, Doctors aren't allowed to say they're part of the Catholic healthcare system, or they don't want to, um, or uh, or or they sort of slow down the process. So I talked to a, a patient who who did end up dying under the California law, but he had originally sort of called his doctor, asked his nurses, and his nurses had sort of brushed him aside. We we can't really talk about this, and he felt sort of embarrassed and hadn't brought it up for a while. So again, that slowed things down. Um, but once the process is initiated, it, um, I think it usually takes a few weeks again to find the main doctor and then a consulting doctor. There's this waiting period. And in fact, you know, when the law first passed in Oregon, doctors kind of imagined and critics certainly imagined 
patients, you know, cancer patients with six months left to live, you know, kind of marching into their doctor's offices and demanding to die that day. And that's not what we are seeing in most states. What we're seeing is that people, I mean, they want to live and they often wait until they're quite close to dying. And in fact, uh, a significant number of patients die during the process, say during the 10 day waiting period, or they lose mental capacity. They're experiencing, you know, enough delirium that they're, or whatever it is that their doctors don't feel comfortable going through with it. So again, there's just so much variability. If they find doctors right away who are willing, it can be, you know, a matter of weeks, but it can also be a matter of months and patients are, are getting sicker during that time. You alluded to some demographical information that's been mm-hmm. gleaned from from different uh, surveys, and and I'm interested in in that, Katie. T- can you tell me is there a certain type of of profile of an individual that uh, chooses physician assisted death when faced with a terminal illness? Yeah, absolutely. So what we know again from states like Oregon and and Oregon's been collecting data for the longest period of time is that, uh, but even in California. Um, People who choose physician-assisted death, they tend to be white, educated, uh, older. Uh, they tend to, they're, they're most likely to have cancer, a terminal cancer, uh, to have some sort of insurance, to be insured, you know, college-level education. So, you know, this is really interesting because when the laws were first passed, critics worried, and, and probably rightly, that um we might end up with a situation where vulnerable people, people, um, you know, with fewer financial resources, uh, minority groups with less access to health care, that they might be sort of pushed towards these deaths, um, either because they don't have access, they didn't have access to good health care or or just because of sort of pressures in the in the system. And that, you know, we've seen the opposite, actually. It's, it's actually sort of the most privileged patients who are choosing this. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this. I think on the one hand, you know, as I said, it can be hard to get this even in places where it's legal, even in, you know, the Bay Area, it was, you know, it can be difficult for for patients to find doctors who, who can do this for them. And so the people who get physician assisted death are the ones who have the time and the resources and sort of the personality to push for what they want. They're used to getting what they want from the medical system and they are, they will negotiate their way around any obstacles. Um, but I think the other thing we need to think about, and I, I don't think this is discussed so much is I think this is an access issue. You know, we already know for instance, that African-Americans are less likely to access, you know, certain kinds of high quality palliative care I think this is another example maybe of, of groups um, not, not having access to um, a certain kind of uh, end-of-life option. I think we also need to think about groups that are actively not interested in this. And, and again, you know, there, there's some, some researchers who, who tell me that, uh, for instance, Africans, African-American, older African-Americans who have some very understandable skepticism of the medical profession are anxious about medical aid and dying uh, often and, and worry about, you know, being pushed towards it to save the system, save Medicare money. And so um, we are, we are seeing that some of those groups aren't considering this. You bring up financial aspects. Uh, Physician assisted death. Is that uh, 
those expenses covered by most third party payers? Often people are paying out of pocket. So um, Medicare is not covering it. Um, Medicaid might in, in some situations, the drugs can be expensive themselves. They can cost hundreds of dollars. Um, so the people I spoke to who, uh, who were accessing this were paying for those drugs out of pocket. Which also speaks to the lack of ability of some, some groups to access this type of, of care, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And hospice, they're, you know, getting for free. This, this isn't included in the normal hospice protocol. Tell me a little bit about the training of uh, physicians that work in this area. Hmm, that's an interesting question because, you know, there's not a lot of it. Um, I think some medical schools are starting to introduce the subject, but, you know, there's no training that's required. And, um, uh, you know, physicians that I, that, who I met who, who do this, they, they were, they sort of learned from each other, um, both kind of the, the more delicate bedside manner aspects of this practice, but also the practicalities of what drug to prescribe and, and where uh, where one might find a pharmacist to compound it. Um, so there's not a lot of training. But, uh, but then again, you know, I think from a medical standpoint, I mean, this isn't complicated. Uh, it's, you know, it's a prescription that a, that a doctor needs to write, but it's not... Um, you know, it's not rocket science. There's a, there's a, there's a cocktail of respiratory and, um, cardiac drugs that is now most commonly used. And and that's, that information is widely shared. So physicians can figure out what they need to do. Objection on the part of pharmacies to providing Mm -hmm. these kind of medications. Have you seen that? Yeah. Yeah. So over the years, there's been different drugs that have been used originally. Um, Pentobarbital was kind of a common option, uh, and what we what was really interesting with that is that um, there's actually no domestic manufacturer, so all the drugs were coming from Europe, and the EU actually placed an export ban on the drug because it was ending up in prisons and being used sometimes to execute death row inmates, which the EU uh, firmly opposes. So that raised the price of the drugs. The drugs here and eventually made it. And accessible. Uh, doctors then started using Secobarbital, but a Canadian company bought the rights to it and hugely jacked up the prices and made it very hard to access. So that left doctors scrambling. A bunch of doctors in Seattle actually got together. It was doctors and, and one veterinarian who has experience euthanizing animals got together and kind of came up with, again, a cocktail of drugs um, that could be compounded by a compound pharmacist. The benefit of that, of course, is the drug doesn't need to go through FDA approval and so could be used sort of quickly. They tried it out on the patients. There's been a few tweaks um, to the to the cocktail, but um, yeah, they came up with that. And yet, and then yes, pharmacists were in some places an obstacle. I know at one point in California there was you know, there was like one or two pharmacists supplying a huge part of the state and they would only do so um, if if their names were sort of kept 
discreet. <laughs> they weren't, you know, they were discreetly shared. So I actually interviewed one of the pharmacists. I went to his pharmacy. I saw his work, but he wouldn't let me name him in the, or, or describe him in the book. He was worried about, you know, he wanted to do this work. He thought it was important. And actually he thought the interface with patients was really meaningful, but he, um, he was afraid of losing business. It seems to me that that speaks to a greater kind of societal pressure against physician assisted at death, um, that somehow there's some degree of, of shame um, or that it is lesser than other areas of, of medicine. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And I think often, you know, yes, there's a lot of opposition. Absolutely. But I think there's also a lot of just confusion and uh, ambivalence. So if I think of other controversial uh, uh, healthcare acts, I, you know, abortion being the, the most common one. I mean, I think most people, most adults know what their view on abortion is. They probably know what an abortion is <laughs> and, and, sure. and kind of loosely how it's done. And they know their views on it and they have kind of thought about it. And this is very different because I think a lot of people, they don't know if it's legal, where it's legal. They don't know how it's done. Um, they have no idea kind of where it would be done and in what context. And they're not sure how they feel about it. So I think it's a funny subject because, you know, it has the ability to be very politically polarizing. But on the other hand, um, you know, people just uh, haven't really done the work in a specific way to learn what this is. Uh, so that that's certainly what I found when I would talk to people about it. It was more, it wasn't always that they were opposed so much as like they felt a little uncomfortable. It felt strange and they didn't know how they felt about it. Well, and certainly your book, The Inevitable, helps move the conversation forward. So um, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, maybe we could talk about other countries. I know that you mentioned that the EU is, is opposed um, in certain aspects to, to this. What about our friends to the north in, in Canada or to the south in Mexico? Do you know how so they stand? Yeah, there's a few countries with actually quite liberal uh, laws on physician-assisted death. So the Benelux countries, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, um, Switzerland, and also Canada. Um, Canada is actually really interesting because up in, until a few years ago, it wasn't legal anywhere here. So it was legal in a number of American states, but not here. Um, in 2016, a federal law was passed legalizing physician-assisted death across the country. So it wasn't province by province. And the law in its initial formulation was much broader than the American law. Um, so uh, a patient didn't have to be, for instance, within six months of a natural death. They needed to be declining. The course of their illness overall needed to be, you know, headed towards death, but uh, their death only needed to be reasonably foreseeable. And since then, that provision has actually been struck down, opening the law up to people who, for instance, have something like multiple sclerosis, which might take their life in 20 years, but, but, but not sooner. Um, the law was more, the, the Canadian law was interestingly more focused on the subjective experience of the patient. So it required that someone be suffering grievously and irremediably, but it was, uh, you know, it's left up to the patient to determine 
what unbearable suffering looks like. I mean, only the patient can really know. And then this year, the law was actually expanded again. So, um, so what will include new categories of patients, most controversially, in 2023, the law will be open to people who are physically well, but who are suffering from uh, a mental illness. So that will go into effect in a couple of years. And I'm sure there will be a lot of growing pains and a lot of debate here about that. Um, that is already legal in a couple of European countries. We have discussed that just because something is available under the law doesn't mean that there's a practical reality that it's available. Mm -hmm. Do you find that in, in Canada that the laws may be expansive but are um, difficult for many to access, or is that not the case? There's a couple of differences in Canada. One main difference that I think really changes the process here so in the United States, if I go to my doctor and I say I want a physician-assisted death, it's legal here, my doctor can just say, no, I don't do that, I'm sorry, and I don't want to talk to you about it. In Canada, doctors are legally provided, uh, legally required to make an effective referral for that kind of patient. So you don't have to participate in the law, but it is you know, a legal option, and you do have to, to refer your patient to someone um, you know, in good time, who is willing to do this. And I think that kind of prevents some of those bottlenecks. Um, and again, it has to be an effective referral. So it has to actually be to someone who's going to, you know, pick up where you're leaving your patient off. And I think that's important because I think, um, you know, it's difficult for patients to understand why they have a legal right to something, but can't practically figure out how to get it. What about organ donation? Do you know percentage-wise how many patients that are uh, going through the physician-assisted death process uh, choose to donate organs? You know, it's not a lot because, um, you know, I think most of these deaths are still taking place at home, not in the hospital setting. And so, as we know, when someone dies at home, you know, and the, the, even if they want to be organ donors, there's not kind of a lot that can be saved. Um uh, but there's this sort of radical, more radical debate going on right now about how that might be changed. So there are certain advocates who would really like the option for a patient to effectively die by organ donation. So someone who's, say, terminally ill, they're in their last weeks of life, instead of dying at home or instead of you know, drinking this cocktail and dying in the hospital and then the doctor's waiting a few minutes and then salvaging whatever organs they can, you know, they would like the option for a patient to be sedated, have his organs taken out and and die that way. Um, that's obviously very controversial, but uh, it's something that I think some patients do want. They like the idea of being able to be um, organ donors and they're sort of surprised that even though they're controlling the final minutes of their death, they're not able to do that in the most effective way possible. This sounds like a very dynamic area of medicine and, and, and social public policy. As we wrap up our, our time together, Katie, I'd, I'd like for you to speculate where, where we're headed um, in the United States are there certain states that are considering um, beyond the 11 that have already 
already accepted it, uh, physician-assisted uh, death? Yeah, I think, um, you know, states like New York will debate bills from time to time. Uh, my suspicion is that these laws will slowly continue to be passed in a lot of states. Um, I think the legalization of physician-assisted death in California will be really important um, in, in kind of motivating other states to pass similar laws. Initially, these laws passed in places like Oregon and Washington, which, you know, um, uh, you know, demographically, they're, they're less diverse and um, there's sort of more access to care in certain places. And I think to have it legalized in California, you know, which reflects a lot of the country uh, will be important. But I, I, I think these laws will continue to pass already 20% of Americans. Uh, can access a physician-assisted death in their state. Um, it seems to me it will grow. But I think, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether the American-style laws are too restrictive. And I think it will take longer for those debates to play out and for any of the laws to be expanded in a meaningful way. And part of the reason for that is that activists in the U.S., the bigger medical aid and dying lobby groups, they really don't want to go there right now. Their goal is to pass narrow laws in as many states as possible and move on from there. And they know that if they start talking about expanding the law in Oregon, then policymakers in places like New York are saying, whoa, we're going to say, whoa, 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 slippery slope. We knew it. Um, so right now, uh, yes, I think the laws will keep passing, but I think they will remain quite narrow. They won't they won't approach anything close to what what Canada's passed over the border. Very interesting. My my guest has been Katie Engelhart, who's the author of The Inevitable, uh, a great a great read. Katie, thank you so much for being on Sound Practice. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. I want to thank Katie Engelhart for her insights and journalistic integrity. I recommend her book, The Inevitable, which is listed in the show notes. I also want to thank the American Association for Physician Leadership for making Sound Practice possible. Please join me next time. Sound Practice releases a new episode every other Wednesday. Bada bing, bada boom. Bada bing, bada boom. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Holy cow, that man Robin went to Kapow.